So an update about where we stand in our series. Uh, you may know that we have entered the period of Christian church history, and today we're considering the South, and no, we're not referring to sweet tea and mosquitoes and humidity, but rather Africa. We're looking at uh, the movement of Christianity south of its beginnings in the Middle East. And uh, next week we will turn east and then thereafter to the West and the Americas. Our story today is housed in the eighth chapter of Acts, and it is the rendezvous between Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to read um, a high volume of biblical passages today. I hope that's okay. So uh, buckle into your pew. Here we go. Uh, telling this story and stopping along the way to make some observations about its meaning. Beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. We're introduced to this first character, Philip, who was one of the deacons selected from Greece to participate in ministry beyond the narrow Judean community. You may know uh, his friend and colleague, perhaps more famously, was named Stephen. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr, unwilling not to speak of the power of the story of Jesus. He's arrested and stoned to death. We then read in verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravishing the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then we read, Philip went down. Philip is the first Christian name we encounter after the death of Stephen. We discover that the fabric of Philip is quite strong for he is willing to continue to tell this story to preach the good news of Jesus even after clear evidence of what happens to people who dare act in this way there's something about the story of Jesus something about the gospel that had so captured his imagination that he was willing to literally give everything for it so what are we to make of the reality that we see even in our own times a certain ambivalence about the gospel? Certainly an unwillingness to give all for it. Is there something the matter with us? Or could it be that we are failing to speak of Jesus and tell the rich meaning of the gospel story in ways that were powerful in those first days is something missing we read uh, the phrase from luke's pen angel of the lord this little phrase indicating that god is clearly in the events that are coming 
The word south, the Greek mesembria, also rendered noon. For in the northern hemisphere at noon, the sun is directly south. The road extending from Jerusalem to Gaza and then down south to Africa. This is our introduction to Philip. Now the Ethiopian, verse 27. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This man is an Ethiopian. Scholars tell us that uh, Ethiopia in the first century was in the region of the Nubian Desert, which you see pictured in this map there in the northeastern portion of Africa. Frank M. Snowden, professor of classical antiquity at Howard University, writes, Ethiopians were the yardstick by which antiquity measured colored peoples. The skin of the Ethiopian was black, in fact, blacker, it was noted, than that of any other people. In fact, Snowden points out that other skin pigmentations were judged against the purity of Ethiopian black. Six centuries earlier, we have this curiosity about Ethiopian skin. Jeremiah 13, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots. And here on this next map, you see a picture, of, a picture of where leopards tend to reside, including the region of Ethiopia. He's Ethiopian. He's from Africa. We next learn that he is a eunuch that is likely a man who has been physically emasculated. He's a court official. He's intelligent Powerful, He has a position of significance in the world. In the court of Candace. Probably not the name of a specific queen, but rather a whole dynasty. In fact, the historian Eusebius tells us in the 4th century that a queen still reigned over Ethiopia. He was secretary of the treasury. He was trustworthy. He was smart. He was educated. He was well regarded in his time. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship, it says, either a convert to Judaism or perhaps an interested seeker along the way. Finally, the text says that he was reading. This makes him a one percenter. For in antiquity, somewhere between a half a percent and three percent of the population could read. We are talking about a formidable figure here. Wealthy, powerful, smart, well-educated, international in his understanding. This is a person of real significance. The gospel had captured the heart of Philip, the Grecian. He was willing to die for the power of this story. And now we discover this Incredibly intelligent man is also willing to give everything for this story. 
You know, it got me to thinking we live in a day and age where uh, to be an intellectual or to be smart is sort of the antithesis of being someone who buys in to the Christian story. It's almost like you choose one or the other. I wonder why this is the case. Uh, the New Yorker magazine is considered one of the great journals of our time, some of the best writing in the English language. A couple of Christmases ago in their December 23 issue, uh, on the cover, this particular picture, the Pope making snow angels. And I looked at this and I thought, this really represents the attitudes of smart people in our day and what they think of Christians, maybe not so smart. And perhaps we can put a fault on secularism and some of those so-called intellectuals for not properly understanding the riches of the gospel story. But then inside this particular issue, this cartoon, and boy, it hit home. There you have a man in his garage full of weapons and supplies. But part of me hopes there never is an Armageddon, he said. There's another picture of Christians right there. Paranoid, afraid, wondering about Armageddon all the time. A different gospel. A different Christianity. A different way of thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. And I look at this particular picture and I wonder, would that intelligent Ethiopian have been attracted to this story, wanting to give his life for it. In the first century, anyway, the description of Jesus and what had been accomplished so captured the mind of this intellect that he wanted to be a part. We continue in verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 32, Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And brothers and sisters, this is, if not the ultimate, then one of the ultimate scriptures in the Old Testament, a prophecy about the coming of a Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent so he opens not his mouth, in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? The Ethiopian has stumbled on the core, the brilliance, the luminous gospel story of Jesus. But Richard N. Lonnecker, professor of New Testament at Wycliffe College, the University of Toronto, reminds us that often in the New Testament where you see an Old Testament passage quoted, that really that's a signal that the larger context around those verses is in view. Long actor suggests that likely the Ethiopian is reading that general area of Isaiah, which would include these words in Isaiah 56. Stunning. 
Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Wow. The Ethiopian eunuch has discovered the story of Jesus. And is beginning to ask questions about its incredible meaning. A story not only that provides the most the richest view of what it means to be a human being and salvation for the world, but a story that also has its arms wide open even for the foreigner, even for a eunuch, even for other nations, even for Ethiopia. His heart is beating. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and he began with this scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Wow. The good news, the gospel, euangelion, the evangelism of Jesus. John Stott makes a bracing and clarifying comment to us about this gospel and about this very passage. He notes Christian evangelism. Christian evangelism presupposes the good news of Jesus Christ. Effective evangelism becomes possible only when the church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth, relevance, and power. My brothers and sisters, the only evangelism worth doing, the only evangelism, the only good news, the only gospel worth talking about, Stott says, is Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus, God pouring himself out in human flesh, giving meaning to our history, giving confidence to our future, and casting a vision of what it means to be human beings in human community in a way so attractive and powerful as to dwarf all other philosophies. The only evangelism with doing is one that is completely centered on Jesus Christ in all of his meaning. 
I ask you this morning, is it possible that the gospel fails to capture the imagination of the next generation? That the church fails to capture the hopes and dreams of the next generation? That Christians have failed to capture the minds of intelligent people and others because we no longer tell this story, the biblical story, the story of Jesus Christ in all of its richness, and instead, from time to time, we open our garage doors and we display a whole different, deficient, and sometimes distasteful vision of what it means to be a Christian. John Stott says, it's Jesus all the way, A to Z, or we are in serious trouble. Philip and the Ethiopian from two different places, one north of the Mediterranean and one south, are both captured by this story and willing to give their lives to it because it's the right story. It's the big story. It's the event worth giving your life to. I like the way Timothy Keller puts it. In an interview with the Atlantic Monthly, Keller just uh, having written a book on the Gospel of Mark, and he was asked, well, what is it like to write, to write a book about Jesus? I want to read to you his response. Keller says, there's a true story, evidently, of Arturo Toscanini. He was director of the NBC Symphony Orchestra years ago here in New York. And there was some place where he had just conducted. Actually, it was just a rehearsal. He conducted a Beethoven symphony. And he did such an incredible job with it. Then when it was all done, the musicians gave him a standing ovation. And he started to cry. He literally started to cry. And he actually had them sit down, and he wouldn't let them applaud. And then he said, it's not me. It wasn't me. It was Beethoven. Keller says, now what he's getting across there is a feeling like, I'm just trying to do justice to the material, and usually I don't. And if occasionally I do okay, you shouldn't be applauding me. It's just, I got out of the way. I just got out of the way. And we actually heard how great the music was. Oh, Pastor Brian, get out of the way. Oh, my other pastoral colleagues, get out of the way. Evangelists in the church, get out of the way. Administrators and teachers, get out of the way. Church, let us get out of the way with all of our hang-ups, with all of our deficiencies, with all of our pet projects and unholy hobbies, let us get out of the way for the glory of the gospel story and its rich meaning for ourselves and for our world, both now and the future. Let us get out of the way. The music is so beautiful. And if we will only allow it to sing, we will have the next generation knocking down the doors to be a part of the church 
and to invest in the greatest and most revolutionary movement ever to come in the history of the world. Let us get out of the way. The music is so beautiful, Philip said. The music is so beautiful, the Ethiopian said. We will give everything for it. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out, out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. that it? <laughs> what about the rest of the story? The historian Irenaeus tells us the Ethiopian became a missionary to his home country, to Ethiopia. In fact, we know in the fourth century that Christianity was the official religion of Ethiopia. But we don't know much after that. Why is that the case? Why do we not know much about Christianity in Africa? The historian Philip Jenkins, in his excellent book, The Lost History of Christianity, says for most of its history, Christianity was a tricontinental religion with powerful representation in Europe, Africa, and Asia. And this was true into the 14th century. Christianity became predominantly European, he says, not because this continent had any obvious affinity for the faith, but by default. Europe was the continent where it was not destroyed. And Jenkins goes on to explain that through persecution and wars and other factors, that Christianity was essentially snuffed out of Asia and snuffed out of Africa. And of course, when an entire era is snuffed out, gone are the oral histories. Gone are the written histories. Killed are the Christian historians that could tell us these tales. But do you remember last week I referenced that parabolic prophecy of Jesus? Jesus says the kingdom is like a tiny little mustard seed. Nothing. But when it is planted in the ground, you just wait. One day it will explode into a huge tree. That Ethiopian eunuch planted a seed. And today, did you know that there are some 53 million Christians in Ethiopia? It's a top 10 country for Christianity. In fact, consider the movement of the African continent as a whole. Look at this data. Just 100 years ago, about 1.4%, this is sub-Saharan Africa, of the Christian world uh, hailed from that particular region. Today, about one-fourth of Christianity, a half a billion Christians are in Africa. 
And this is significant. I think this brings some good news. Let me play with your minds for just a moment and turn the world upside down. Or is it right side up? <laughs> Let's think about Adventism just by way of example, which really illustrates the rest of Christianity. Look at these numbers in North America, Australia, China, Russia, and Europe. These are the number of Adventists currently from these locations. But then look at both Africa and South America. Look at the global south. Huge. You know, when I start to worry about the condition of Christianity in the North, Christianity and Adventism in what we would call the global West, I imagine that we are in a movement right now where the arrows are pointing our way and through a powerful influx, not only with immigration, but the influence of growing Christianity in places that we may not think about very much. This is a vibrant movement. There is a load of kingdom energy out there that is available for us today until that moment when Jesus comes again. Philip's willing to give his life for this movement. The Ethiopian is willing to give everything for it Two intelligent men who had thought carefully about, certainly, about many things in the world, many philosophies, many approaches, many political solutions. But when they discover Jesus and what embracing Jesus could mean for human community and for valuing our world, they were all in, all in. Let me finish with this. There was an African man many, many years ago in antiquity, Anthony by name. One night, early in the fourth century, Anthony, the revered Egyptian monk, was standing in the desert engaged in earnest prayer. Satan seized the opportunity to rally the wild beasts of the area and to send them against Anthony. As they surrounded him on every side, and with threatening looks were ready to leap upon him, he looked at them boldly and said unto them, If ye have received power over me from the Lord, draw nigh and delay not, for I am ready for you. But if ye have made ready and come at the command of Satan... Get ye back to your places and tarry not, for I am a servant of Jesus the conqueror. And when the blessed man had spoken these words, Satan was straightway driven away by the mention of the name of Christ like a sparrow before a hawk.